You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. Michael Cannings is the publisher of Camper Press, a British Taiwanese publishing house focused on East Asia that he co-founded with John Grant Ross and Mark Swafford in 2014. Michael spoke with me about how they weathered the challenging early years of Camper Press and shared some insights about the publishing industry. This independent press's primary pursuit has not been about profit, but rather the promotion of books about Taiwan. Most notably, Camphor Press has rescued important books such as Formosa Betrayed and A Pale of Oysters. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thank you for having me, Felicia. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Um, could you tell me a little bit about your background and your upbringing? Sure. Um, I'm English. Uh, I was born in England, um, but spent my early years in Saudi Arabia. Uh, my dad was working out there. Uh, when we moved back to England, um, we lived in Devon, which is quite a rural, um, idyllic part of the country. Uh, so I had most of my schooling there in Devon. Um, I then went to university in Oxford, uh, where I studied philosophy and modern languages. Um, German was my language at the time. Uh, so that was kind of my educational background. Um, and then from from that sort of time on, then I went on to uh, to Taiwan after graduation. Oh, that's interesting. Um, do you remember much about Saudi Arabia? Yeah, I mean, I, we left when I was seven, so I have quite a few memories of the place. Um, I mean, we lived uh, in a fairly sort of isolated fashion, along with other uh, Westerners Expats, on a compound. Westerners. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't exactly a, um, a multicultural experience in terms of <laughs> mixing with Saudis, um, although there were sort of expats from all over the world. Uh, so it was quite different to then going back to sort of very rural, very white Devon yeah. uh, in yeah, England after sure. that. Wow. Um, I'm very curious because it's so interesting what you're doing with Camper Press. I'm wondering if you look back at your childhood and your early life, um, do you recall having any interest, any signs of interest in topics that would maybe lead you to connect the dots to like how you ended up starting a publishing company? Um, well, uh, my, my, my mother's a big reader um, and a big influence, especially at an early age. She taught me to read sort of well before I went to school. Mm. Uh, and I was an avid reader from then on in, really. Um, I didn't really have any thoughts about setting up a publishing company or anything like that at, <laughs> at that age. Um, and I, to be honest, had no particular interest in, in Asia either. Um, I did kind of daydream, I know, as a as a, a an older kid about um, setting up my own bookshop one day, <laughs> um, yeah. but publishing publishing never really came into it at that time. Right. So, what is it that brought you to Taiwan, and what would you say is your connection to Taiwan? Hmm. So, after graduation, I wanted to get away from England for a while um, and learn a new language. Uh, I decided on Mandarin really because people said it was difficult and I kind of wanted a challenge. Um, I applied for EFL jobs in China. Uh, I got an offer actually in uh, Wuxi, which is not far from Shanghai. Um, They sent me across contract uh, and it was just full of onerous rules. you know, the, the kind of personal stuff about being confined to a dorm after a certain time and all of that. But there was wow. also a list of topics that you couldn't discuss uh, in class or hmm. not just in class, actually. It was kind of said that you couldn't discuss them at all. Uh, and they actually listed out some of the things that you couldn't discuss, which I found interesting. So, you know, you couldn't talk about uh, AIDS, Tibet, Tiananmen, Taiwan, uh, AIDS at the time was kind of a big topic in, hmm. in China. This is like 2002. Um, mm-hmm. And around the same time, I got an offer from a school in uh, Tainan. Oh. And uh, the contract was very simple. It was, you know, these are your working hours. This is your salary. Sign here. 
Um, <laughs> no mention of yeah, no mention of forbidden topics or personal restrictions or anything like that. Um, you know, so having the two contracts side by side, it was kind of an easy decision. But I have to say, I really ended up in Taiwan by accident. Um, it wasn't a, a calculated move on my part. Um, and I guess sort of continuing the the, the connection to Taiwan is it was part of your question. Um, you know, obviously I spent quite a long time there. What was your time in Taiwan like? Um, like, what did, what were you doing there besides um, studying the language? Because you mm. mentioned you ended up spending there uh, quite a long time, like more than a decade. Yeah, yeah. I I, I uh, when I first went to Taiwan, that was to 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 Tainan. Um, so that was for two years. Uh, then I went back to the UK for a year. Uh, decided that actually I quite like Taiwan and I quite wanted to move back. Um, so after that, I was nine years in, uh, well, what was Taipei County and is now uh, Xinbei um, in Zhonghe and uh, Xizhi. Mm-hmm. Uh, for most of that time, I was working uh, in marketing for a company that made computer networking equipment. So not the most interesting job in the world. Um, <laughs> But I did meet some interesting people as part of the job. Uh, I went to India for a few months to, to set up a, a branch office there, and um, uh, I also I also worked on the high speed rail um, for a bit, working on uh, user manuals and so on. So, hmm. kind of the jobs that uh, expats in Taiwan often often do on the marketing or the uh, um, the technical data side of things. Right, right. And um, I understand that you have uh, two co-founders at Camper Press, and I'm wondering, how did you meet them, John Gross and Mark Swafford? Yeah, so I, I met Mark for the first time, I think, in about 2005. Um, he has a website uh, called pinion.info. Okay. Um, it was all about Pinyin, uh, the mm-hmm. sort of transcription system used for Mandarin Chinese. And being something of a linguistics nerd myself, I sought him out um, and we became friends. Um, John and I met later, uh, I think perhaps around 2012, uh-huh. uh, although we had con- corresponded a little bit before then um, about his book, Foremost and Odyssey. Uh, he lives in Jai County, so he didn't get up to Taipei much back then. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I think it was around 2012 I, I met him. I wanted to ask you if you could share a little bit more about what you witnessed or experienced uh, during your time living in Taiwan, and maybe something that left a really deep impression on you that led you to feel that Taiwan really needed more representation and compelled you to start Comfort Press. Because I think it's really interesting that you know that you're from like you're from the UK and that you and your partners are not Taiwanese or connected to Taiwan in the traditional sense and I'm it's very interesting to know what motivates you mm. so um i mean i think the answer is going to be different for for each yes. of the three of us um for me personally sort of big events that i remember that helped to shape my perception of taiwan um i, I suppose the first a presidential election that I experienced, which was 2004. Mm-hmm. Um, that was when uh, Tan Suibian was re-elected by a razor-thin margin. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was all kinds of craziness around ramming the election commission offices. And, um, you know, it, it looked like a, quite a turbulent time. It felt like a turbulent time. Um, and I was living in Tainan at that point, so... Was that the year that he also got assassinated? Uh, yeah, he was he was shot the day yeah. before the election. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, and so it was kind of um, at that point my Mandarin wasn't great, and so it was kind of uh, the rumor mill um, trying to work out what had happened, what might go, what might be happening later on. Um, and I, I went to a few rallies before the election, not really because I had a great idea of politics in those mm-hmm. days uh but just to see what it was like and and, and soak up the atmosphere yeah, it's a curiosity yeah yeah um and then i saw the the reaction when he was re-elected uh from the losers 
Um, and I think that was one of the sparks for me for getting more interested in the the internal political situation in Taiwan. I mean, I think it's probably obvious from a very early stage to me that um, that what Taiwan was like on the ground was not like what people were saying about Taiwan outside Taiwan. Um, and, and do you, could you explain a little bit more uh, what that discrepancy was? Well, I think it's it's the whole framing around Taiwan as a uh, you know a, a renegade province, or um, it, it was always that China framing whenever any, whenever anyone talked about Taiwan. Mm-hmm. That this was the most important thing about Taiwan was that it could mm-hmm. kickstart a war, or mm-hmm. you know, um, and, and the voices of the people living there were completely absent from that discussion. Um, And it was all done. If, if somebody was asked for an opinion on it, it would be a Chinese expert. Mm -hmm. Um, And you didn't really hear anything about Taiwan in the international media, except for uh, the China situation. Uh The only other thing that I I remember seeing in the news about Taiwan uh, before I I moved there was, was the the, the big earthquake in 99. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the only other time it had sort of really impressed itself on my, my consciousness um, before then. So I think living in Taiwan and seeing that, uh, seeing the disparity between what life was like on the ground and then what people were saying outside Taiwan was was a big motivating factor because I thought all of these people are missing what it's really like here, what the people are like, their consciousness their motivations um their day-to-day life it's all you know danger world war kind of conversation and not you know there there are real people at stake here um and you're not taking their views into account at all um i think that's changed over the years and i think it's got better in the international media it's still not still not perfect but definitely improving um and so that's kind of the the beginning and then right at the end of my time in taiwan so i left um in, at the end of April 2016, uh, which was mm-hmm. right in the middle of the sunflowers. Um, right. And so so my time in Taiwan was kind of oddly bookended by those two things. Um, and uh, and the sunflowers for me came as a um, something of a surprise because the trajectory under the Ma government had been towards integration with China and it seemed like it was a done deal and you know that um that people would just go along with it uh until they didn't um (laughs) and until the uh you know the ECFA protests which then became the sunflower movement Mm -hmm. um you know it 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 kind of seemed like Mang Zhou was going to get his own way and the country was going to go that way whether or not the average person on the street really wanted Mm-hmm. wanted it to go that way or not mm-hmm. uh and so having the sunflowers at the the end of my time there um i think is uh feels quite symbolic um for me because it's i mean i, I i'm not partisan political in a taiwanese sense um but that kind of uh taiwanese consciousness mm-hmm. and all of the things that came out of the sunflower movement all of that raising awareness all of the the media attention that came around it and the, the growing international profile of Taiwan. It just felt like that was quite a serendipitous moment. Thank you for that. That's really interesting because I was actually in Taiwan at that time that you mentioned mm. in 2004, and that brings back a lot of memories um, because there was that red shirts movement, right, where the people were uh, protesting and calling for the um, recount, and it was really interesting times for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And and for me as well, the kind of the red shirts are a very interesting um, idea because to have uh, Suminda taking part in that mm-hmm. um, protest or leading that protest, essentially, uh, knowing his background, knowing his history as a political prisoner and a pro-democracy advocate and everything, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's how it was framed in the international media that... Um, he had become disillusioned with the corruption, the uh, the excesses of the the Tsarian government. Um, whereas the reality on the ground was more complex than that. Um, but that, yeah, I think that's a that's a great example of how the international media in general want a, a nicely gift wrapped story 
that doesn't have too many nuances or too many sharp edges that they can package and 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 deliver to people. Um, so it's it's another example of how I think Taiwan was misrepresented at the time. I'm curious to know how did the three of you come up with this idea to start a publishing company? <laughs> well, uh, first of all, I approached John about republishing Formosan Odyssey as an ebook. Uh, yeah. At the time, it was very hard to find copies, um, and as it's the the best modern Taiwan travel log, mm -hmm. I thought it should be available to a wider audience. Mm -hmm. um, and I had a some idea of how to do ebooks and how to publish them and so on, um, but I was by no means uh, an expert. Mm -hmm. uh, it was John who then suggested that we broaden out and publish more ebooks. Um, and that kind of became the genesis of Camphor Press rather than it being a one-off thing of redoing uh, Formosa and Odyssey. Right. Um, and then when we got serious about it, we realized that we needed an experienced editor. Um, mm -hmm. And Mark was the logical choice for that. So oh, as soon as right. we decided that it was going to be a thing, it was going to be a, a company, a publishing house, uh, then we got Mark involved as well. Oh, interesting. So he has experienced copy editing and typesetting or... Yeah. Um, so the copy editing side, certainly, um, he's been working, um, with various government departments and academic institutions for decades now in Taiwan, uh, as a copy editor. Um, so he has huge experience with that. Um, John, um, for the most part, uh, writes, uh, EFL textbooks. Mm -hmm. So that's the, um, the predominant uh, sort of income that he has. Um, and then me, I kind of picked up the other stuff that was needed to run a publishing company after mm -hmm. that. So the typesetting and, and everything else. How did you decide on the name Camphor Press? Camphor is a, a great choice in hindsight. Um, at the time, it really wasn't as clear to us as it is now that that was the right one to go with. Mm -hmm. uh, camphor as a, a tree, as a material, is kind of intertwined with the history of Taiwan um, and Taiwan's links with the rest of Asia and the rest of the world. You know, it was mm -hmm. uh, camphor oil was exported from Taiwan. It's used in all kinds of products. Um, so it's really kind of bound up with the history of Taiwan, but it's also an outward looking concept. Um, mm -hmm. So that fits us very well, I think. Um, we did kind of run through quite a few other names um, when we were uh, preparing to, to, to start the company. Uh, the two I can remember both involved the Taiwan Strait um, yeah. because we were planning to do books about Taiwan and China. Uh -huh. So we didn't want to give it a Taiwan name or a Chinese name. We wanted mm -hmm. it somewhere between the two. So Taiwan Strait was perfect. Um, so the first one we had was uh, Black Ditch. Hmm. That's the old uh, Taiwanese name. Um, which I think I'll mangle the Taiwanese pronunciation here, but it's Odzuikal, mm -hmm. yeah. um, is the Gol, uh, or would be the um, Mandarin. Yeah. Uh, and the other was uh, 40 Fathoms. That was the one we were actually going to go with for a while. All of our early kind of <laughs> documents about the press are still called 40 Fathoms. Um, and we use that because that was the average depth of the strait as oh. recorded by the early uh -huh. European okay. mariners. Huh. Um, but, you know, in hindsight, I'm very glad we chose the name we did. I think it's the best one. Yeah, yeah. I can see why you chose it. Interesting <laughs> to know the background. What are the three of you, what do you each bring to the table as you do this business together? And how is it that you run the business together? It's very interesting to me. Hmm. So uh, John is an extrovert. Uh, he brings uh, confidence and drive and a sense of purpose um, to the whole endeavor. Uh, Mark is pretty much the opposite. <laughs> he's um, introverted and he's a, a careful, considered person. And I think that's, uh, that's kind of invaluable. That personality type is invaluable in the editorial side in maintaining the kind of high standards that he sets for the quality of our books. Mm -hmm. um, and then me, I don't know, I'm probably somewhere between the two in terms of the introvert, extrovert uh, mm -hmm. spectrum. And my contribution, I, I, I suppose, is really knitting everything together. Mm -hmm. um, so it tends to be that uh, John handles the a lot of the author recruitment 
um, so getting new authors on board, um, and the developmental editing. And then uh, Mark will handle the copy editing, and then I kind of do everything else. So that's <laughs> the, the business admin, that is uh, marketing, book design, book production, all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, so we have we have different skills and different personality types that seem to mesh mm -hmm. together well uh, in the business. That's wonderful. I mean, because it's not always easy for people who know each other to actually run a business together. Do you have any advice or tips for how to do business with your friends? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think um, John and Mark won't mind me saying that we weren't close friends before oh. we started the business. Mm -hmm. um, so we didn't really have the hang-ups about speaking our mind or okay. kind of... Uh, uh, unintentionally offending other uh -huh. people or whatever. Uh -huh. We we did really look on it as, um, yeah, it was a hobby business in the beginning, certainly, but it was a business. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to make the best books that we could. Um, and so the ego thing or the friendship thing hasn't really seemed to get in the way of that. Um, running a business with close friends, I don't know. I can't. I can't really speak to that right. because we kind of weren't when we mm -hmm. started. We we were friends, but uh, not that close. I would say. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and what would you say were some of the major challenges in setting up and running Camper in the early in the early years? Uh, yeah, in the early days, the challenges were really around keeping going when it felt like an uphill struggle. Um, it was 2014 when you guys started. Yeah. So we we. Um, we made the decision to go ahead in t early 2013, and then we spent about a year setting things up before we went live uh, in February 2014. Um, and although we really had no idea what to expect when we set it up, the after the initial kind of buzz, uh, sales weren't great, and it was kind of hard to attract the authors that we wanted to, and it's a lot of work, um, yeah. you know, and it just, uh, that initial stage, um, and certainly up until about, um, I think about three years in really was when it started to take off. Wow. Um, so a lot of that first couple of years particularly was really just sticking with it when it didn't seem to be going anywhere. Um, and then kind of the word started to get out and people started to buy the books and people started to approach us about publishing their books and, and suddenly it all it all took off. Yeah, um, but yes, keeping going when it was tough in the beginning is probably the, the biggest challenge. Right. That's very interesting, the timing, because that was right before the Sunflower Movement, right? Yeah, it was. And, and uh, I think, I mean, although we, we, we started planning in 2013 so it wasn't tied up with the sunflower movement expressly right. Right. but there was a kind of feeling that we had um, at the time that uh, taiwan is this huge story or should be this huge story um, and there wasn't really a platform for the kind of books that we wanted to read about taiwan mm -hmm. there were academic presses doing academic books about taiwan but there wasn't really anything for the general reader um and you got the occasional book that came out through some other press, but there wasn't any press that was really focused on Taiwan um, at the time. Mm -hmm. So although the kind of sunflower movement didn't have that impact on us, um, and it just kind of was a coincidence that it happened at the same time, it does feel like uh, there were a few strands in Taiwan that were all working towards the same thing. Um, a lot of other, so uh, Ketagala Media, Mm -hmm. and uh, New Bloom and others like that all came mm -hmm. around the same kind of time, 2014, 2015. Um, mm -hmm. And it seems like a lot of people were moving in the same direction at the same time. So, yeah, part of the, the zeitgeist, yeah. maybe. Actually, that's interesting when I think about it, because I didn't even think about it in the context of my podcast, but I started in 2013 also. Right, right, exactly. How do you think um, things have changed? Camper was like a side business or like a hobby business. Mm -hmm. Is it still a hobby business now? Uh, it's something more than that and probably something less than a full commercial mm -hmm. success story. Mm -hmm. um, so it was initially uh, yeah, a side gig for all three of us. Um, I spend the majority of my time 
on Camper Press now. Uh, the other two guys are still uh, still part time. So they're both still in Taiwan, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm back in the UK, and I have been uh, since 2014. So mm -hmm. shortly after we started the press, uh, mm -hmm. we moved we moved back mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I've been pretty much full time on the press since uh, really since the start of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, I had an opportunity at my my job to take voluntary redundancy um, to get a, a decent uh, package out of that deal. Mm -hmm. um, and I really didn't want to be going into another office at that point, given the right. pandemic. Right. Um, and this was at the point where, you know, having a lot of contacts in Asia, we were really aware of what was happening over there. And But most of the UK still had its head in the sand about, what was going on so there was no idea of uh you know social distancing there was no idea of working from home anything mm -hmm. like that mm -hmm. um so i was quite happy to take redundancy and right. and use that as a chance to work on camphor press so it's been uh nearly two years now of of the uh of working on it pretty much full time yeah and i'm sure there's um been some challenges with um the pandemic and I saw on your um, website with Brexit and all that. So how, yeah. how would you say COVID's affected um, Camphor? How's COVID affected us? Well, um, we work from home, so, mm -hmm. you know, we don't have an office, so home working is kind of the norm for us anyway. So that part hasn't been, hasn't had a huge impact. Um, for me though, uh, my children were at home for much of, 2020 and I did uh, the majority of the homeschooling and the, oh, the housework wow, yeah. and everything else so wow. um, that occupied a lot of my time sure. and slowed down work on camphor press so at the start of 2020 yeah. I had all these big plans about you know now that I'm full-time I can we can do these extra books and we can put more effort <laughs> into marketing and so on um, that didn't really materialize because yeah. of uh, because of the kids being at home um, mm -hmm. interesting, interestingly though, uh, in the summer of 2020, mm -hmm. we saw quite a big bump in sales, um, as people in lockdown bought more books. I think, um, there was a, a definite trend and it's not just us, you know, a lot of the publishers I talked to, uh, other indie publishers say a similar thing that, uh, in 2020, June, July, August, um, their sales were going crazy too. So that was a nice kind of bump for us um yeah. and then after that point it came down a little bit but was still at a higher level than it had been mm -hmm. before the pandemic mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so in terms of sales yeah it's been pretty good um in terms of sort of uh work-life balance and uh um mental health mm, probably not so great <laughs> yeah yeah unfortunately it's a sentiment that's uh, shared in many parts of the world yeah I also see that you mentioned that you started off publishing ebooks as a digital publisher, but then you moved on to publishing print books in about 2015. Yeah, the decision to move to print books came about really because it became economically possible to do at that point. Um, so the traditional model of publishing is that you you have a print run, so you you print. 500 copies or a thousand copies or 5,000 copies of your book. Um, you store it in a warehouse, you send it out to distributors, they then send it on to the bookshops and so on. And it requires quite a lot of capital to get started. Uh, Canfor Press has always run on a shoestring right from the beginning. Um, so it wasn't until the print on demand technology was mature that we could afford to go into print books. So what print on demand means is if somebody orders a copy of a book from our website, uh, we can forward that order to our printer. They will print a single copy of that book and send it out to that customer. So um, it means that we don't have to spend, you know, $5,000 on a print run and then uh, another $2,000 warehousing the books and so on. So it, it makes it feasible for, for the smaller guys like us to get involved in print. Um, before that, print on demand was, was kind of ready. We, we always wanted to go into print, but we just knew that it wasn't economically 
viable for us without some kind of investment. Right. Okay, that makes sense. As I was doing research and preparing for this interview, I learned that in 2017, Camfer acquired the backlist of the U.S. press Eastbridge and then also later on acquired rights to a number of out-of-print titles in Taiwan. I'm wondering, what did all of that entail and how did you decide to do that? Yeah, so both the Taiwan titles and the, the Eastbridge back catalogue were kind of easy decisions for us to make. Um, the Eastbridge move was the first significant financial investment we made as part of Camphor Press. Um, it wasn't a lot of money looking back, but at the time it was kind of a little daunting to us. Sure. Um, Eastbridge had been uh, mothballed essentially for about uh, seven years at that point. So they hadn't released any new titles, I think, since 2008. Um, but still a back catalogue of very interesting titles that were closely related to what we were doing um, and that were mostly now out of print. Um, so it was, a, it was an easy decision to, for us to make. It was about 50 titles that we thought, you know, 40 of these are really good fit with us and there's an audience out there. There's still a willing um, readership out there. Uh, so once we worked out that we could afford to do it, um, and that, uh, it was, you know, they, they, they fit nicely with what we were doing. Uh, it was an easy decision to make for the Taiwan titles. We really wanted to get Formosa betrayed back into print. That was the primary motivation there. Um, it's a book by George Kerr, who, um, was an eyewitness to the 228, uh, massacre and, wrote this um, passionate uh, account of the time leading up to and shortly after 228 that's been um, kind of really pivotal, I think, particularly in the overseas Taiwanese community um, in understanding what happened in Taiwan, not just 228, but then afterwards in the martial law era. So it's a really crucial book to Taiwan's history and we wanted to get it back into print. Uh, Finding out who held the rights and then uh, tracking them down led us to the other four titles that we acquired at the same time. Um, so we got five great Taiwan titles uh, that we were able to bring all of them back into print. Um, and uh, I think, you know, the, the motivation in starting the press was never about money or about, uh, you know, making it a commercial success. It was always mm -hmm. the mission of, uh, providing a platform for great books about this region. Um, and getting those books back into print is just so closely tied up with what we wanted to do that it was a very easy decision to make. And now for a short break. We're proud to say that Talking Taiwan is now a 2021 Golden Crane award-winning podcast. Talking Taiwan is a Golden Crane award-winning podcast and the longest-running Taiwan-related podcast. We are dedicated to bringing you stories connected to Taiwan and Taiwan's global community. Help us to grow and continue producing engaging content by making a contribution on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Talking Taiwan. Yeah, I mean, it's so important that you're able to rescue these books and make them available again. I remember I have a copy of Formosa Portrait, but that, but then after I remember for quite a while it was not available. Mm. Also, uh, was the Elegy of Sweet Potatoes one of those also? That's that right. You, yeah. What are also some of the other um, out-of-print books that you quote-unquote rescued that are a little bit more notable? Mm. So I, I guess just talking about Taiwan titles, there's uh, A Pail of Oysters, by Vern Snyder. That is a novel of the White Terror uh, that was banned in Taiwan for 40 years under martial law. Mm -hmm. uh, there were sort of copies passed around in secret and uh, um, unauthorized translations that were circulating in the community, but um, very difficult to get hold of. Um, and uh, we contacted uh, Vern Snyder, Vern Snyder, the author, we contacted his widow and she was absolutely delighted that we wanted to, to bring it back. Um, so that was a great one for us to, 
to kind of resurrect. Um, we have the Jing Affair, which is a fun, kind of slightly crazy Cold War novel uh, uh, filled with betrayal and heroism. Um, it's quite dramatic and quite uh, overblown, but a, a lot of fun. So is that a novel or? Is it that... is a novel, yes. Okay. Um, okay. It kind of centers around a figure called General Jing, who is a sort of loose allegory of uh, Jiang Jingguo. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's uh, about how he is about to sell out Taiwan to China. Um, and then the uh, the sort of military thriller aspect of it unfolds as uh, his plot is foiled. Well, hopefully you have to get to the end to find <laughs> out. <laughs> and the other, the other Taiwan one that we kind of brought back um, from being out of print uh, that, that I really like is, is Alvin Liu's book, The Hell Screens. Um, that's a, oh, it's, it's beautifully written, uh, kind of supernatural thriller, um, mm. set in Taipei around 2000. Um, and, uh, there was sort of famous case at the time, um, that he works into the narrative. Uh, so it's sort of true crime, but it's also woven into this, um, underworld uh, environment that weaves in like Taiwanese myth and folklore into mm-hmm. a sort of contemporary Taipei. It's a great book and really yeah. happy to bring it back. What is the oldest or rarest book that you guys have published? The the oldest is easy to identify. Um, that is Instructions for Chinese Women and Girls. Oh, uh, interesting. It's, uh, <laughs> it's a nearly 2,000-year-old guide to etiquette. Uh, written by Ban Zhao, who is often identified as China's first female historian. Um, so we've got a modern introduction to the book, um, and it's you know it, it's tongue in cheek now because uh, it, it's looking at uh, advice to young women two thousand years ago, which um, doesn't really hold water today. But we actually we get a lot of people buying the book as kind of a uh, a joke present for their for their friends, um, but it's also really interesting in its own right that she was a very accomplished woman. She's one of the the first kind of what you would call academics in today's language, first female academic, academics in China who we know anything about really. Um, so to have this sort of ancient artifact that still is so accessible, she's talking about uh, you know how to prepare meals when your mother-in-law is in the house, things like that. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's funny. What has changed, do you think, with the publishing industry or with um, Taiwan and so forth? Yeah, um, with the publishing industry, I think, yes, print on demand, like, like we already discussed. Um, I think there's also, um, yeah, that makes it easier to operate as an independent publisher. Uh, and I think that has led to a proliferation of small presses that are focused on a single genre or a single issue or a single region. Um, I think that's been great for the publishing industry. On the sort of negative side, I think we've seen the dominance of a few big publishers uh, that were already a big chunk of the market and have become ever more dominant and also particularly during the pandemic, um, when people haven't been going to bookstores as much, uh, the dominance of, of Amazon. Uh, you know, we do a lot of our business through Amazon. Um, I'm not going to uh, come on here and, and um, you know, be very negative about them, but it's never good for all of your business to run through a single, uh, a single retailer. So it's become more... Um, I think focused around the big publishing houses and the big retailers. And I don't think that's very good for diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, as to how Taiwan has changed, I think uh, it's, it's changed a lot in eight years, uh, particularly in our sort of area where you're talking about the influence or the awareness of Taiwan outside Taiwan. Um, that's not down to us. That's a, that's a uh, kind of holistic thing um, across many things, including media, publishing, film, music, um, politics, of course. Um, 
and you see Taiwan being talked about and being uh, many more people are aware of Taiwan than ever they were sort of eight years ago. And that, I mean, that's obviously good for us. People want to know more about, about Taiwan. It's good for Taiwan. Uh, Taiwan's future really depends on those international links and international awareness. Um, I mean, look at the recent, uh, you know, the recent news about Lithuania mm-hmm. and the sort of burgeoning friendship that is there between Lithuania and Taiwan. Uh, those kind of links are invaluable for Taiwan. And I think eight years ago, nine, ten years ago, when we were thinking about starting the press, really we weren't as optimistic. Um, we kind of felt, or I certainly did, that, uh, you know, this is before the Sunflower Movement, bear in mind, that um, Taiwanese youth were fairly apathetic about the larger picture that, uh, you know, at the time, Mainjo um, was president and it just all kind of felt like we were drifting without any real direction. Um, and since then, a, uh, a whole number of young Taiwanese people, young Taiwanese uh, in the diaspora as well, Taiwanese Americans and so on, have really pushed the international profile of Taiwan. And it's great to see. Very happy with that. Well, I just think it's really quite special and amazing that um, the three of you, um, expats, have you know dedicated your time to to starting this press and to doing this important work. And I just wonder, like, what is it that really motivated you, especially during those early years? Because you said during the first three years, I imagine you probably you were struggling. You probably weren't profitable or whatever comes with that. Yeah. Um... I mean, I guess the advantage that we we had with Camphor Press is that because it was a it wasn't a full time thing for any of us, and because we ran it in such a way that um, we didn't really have any major overheads, um, that if there was other stuff going on in our lives or if it wasn't really working, um, then we could hibernate it for a little bit and then come back to it later on. So the pressure. Wasn't but perhaps there's still as... a certain amount of dedication that is required. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. To um, continue. I, I think for for me certainly, and and certainly for John as well, it's. Um, I mean, it sounds corny, but it's kind of a, a calling. Uh, it is really something that both of us feel is um, a mission that we identify with really strongly and and it doesn't seem like something that is work in the traditional sense. It also doesn't seem like something that uh, you can change like you might a a traditional job. I'll do this one for a couple of years and then I'll go and look for something better. I mean, this is it. This is what we both want to do. Um, So, you know, it's when you have a sense of purpose like that, the other, the other worries, the other hurdles, obstacles become smaller, become easier because you're just focused on, well, yeah, it might be tough, but this is what we want to do. This is the right mm-hmm. direction for us. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So, yeah, you just kind of keep going. I think it's also that, that we do get uh, great feedback, and so it's always nice. Like uh, wh- whatever you're dealing with, I'm sure you know this from your podcast, you know, one comment from a listener um one mention in a a news article somewhere that lifts your whole week you know it makes such a difference Mm -hmm. um and so those little dopamine hits that we get from people (laughs) being nice about us that they're invaluable uh, in keeping us going yeah well i'm sure they're being more than just nice about you um but yeah certainly that's what it is because it's as you mentioned it's not about the profit motivation that is why you started this press um it's a bigger purpose of what you want to do with the press and Mm. it is quite impressive now to look at uh all the titles and the things that you have in your catalog i'm wondering also um what books would you recommend for people who might not know that much about taiwan now and who might like to learn more Oh, um, there are tons. <laughs> it's, uh, I think it depends what part of Taiwan you're interested in. I think a great place to start, and this is completely biased because it's published through Camphor Press. So, um, 
bear that in mind. Uh, but uh, John Ross's book, um, Taiwan in 100 Books, um, mm-hmm. is not a simple bibliography of Taiwan. Really, it takes you through some of the history, some of the story of Taiwan through the books that have been written about it in English. And so there's, uh, he goes into history, he goes into um, uh, all sorts of different stories that serve as a jumping off point for anybody who wants to learn more about Taiwan. So if you have that book, then you can say, okay, well, the part that interests me at the moment is, um, you know, the, the, the cross-strait issues, or the part that interests me at the moment is uh, the economic miracle uh, through the 60s, 70s, 80s, or 70s, 80s, I guess. Um, or the part that interests me is contemporary politics, whatever. And, and for each of those uh, areas, then in that book, there'll be recommendations of, of books to jump off to read. Um, I think outside of that and outside of um, camphor press titles, fiction can often do a good job of representing uh, a, a place um, and create a better sort of understanding of feeling and emotion and reality on the ground. Um, and so in that regard, I think uh, the obvious um, recommendation would be Green Island. Um which is a novel sort of split in time, but essentially focusing on the white terror um, uh, era in Taiwan and, and 228 in particular. Um, that's, uh, that's a fantastic book. And I think um, uh, outside of that, I think there's, there's, a, there's an interesting sort of past with uh, writing on Taiwan in that there were sort of uh, quite a few books that came out at the during the Cold War, um, that were all framed in that sort of light, talking about geopolitics, and then there's the sort of Taiwan studies resurgence. I know you had um, David Fell on your podcast uh, recently. You know, there's a Taiwan studies thing, which is which is all um, academic uh, side of things. Um, but what's what's kind of missing from the conversation? to a large extent is those, are those books that help you understand Taiwan in a kind of um, accessible fashion. Now, what David's doing with the Taiwan study stuff is great. Um, and they are moving uh, some of the books that are really good at communicating to a general audience. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the ones I like uh, as a sort of newcomer to Taiwan um, would be a book called Why Taiwan Matters. Um, okay. It's by Shelley Rigger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is a quick explanation of the geopolitics and it's not perfect. Um, there are things you could pick holes within there, but I think as a, as a sort of first time visitor, that's a good way to, to understand the, the geopolitics of Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you're looking to understand, uh, Taiwanese people, um, then I would, the probably two two authors I would recommend would be uh, Lian, um, who is uh, she's written a number of novels about Taiwan, um, The Lost Garden, The Butcher's Wife, um, some really great stories. But they they really kind of uh, immerse you in the Taiwan of the time. Um, so those are like historical fiction. Yeah, I mean she she writes. Um, Yes, you're right. There's historical fiction and she writes more contemporary mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. stuff as well. And then the other one would be uh, Ming Yi, who wrote um, The Lost Bicycle and The Man with the Compound Eyes. Um, and he was also kind of brilliantly translated by uh, Daryl Sturck. So mm-hmm. uh, you've got in that, in um, Ming Yi, you've got a great stylist, brilliantly translated into English, and gives a real feeling of Taiwan away from the sort of bigger conflict stories that we mm-hmm. always hear about. Mm-hmm. Great. And you know, I do know that you also have um, what's called like the Taiwan bundle or you probably, and I saw you have a Korea bundle and things like that. So those are bundles of books that people could pick up if they want to do some water reading about um, those areas. Absolutely. And I think um, if you go to the, if you go to our website, then there's a section about Taiwan, which is not just 
our books, um, mm-hmm. but also provides links to other places, uh, other lists people have made of great things to read about Taiwan. So it's kind of a good jumping off point to then um, understand more about Taiwan. I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about the work of Joe Hanley, one of the authors um, whose book you've published and who I've actually had on the podcast previously, but we're going to have him back to talk about his most recent work, Migrante. We published uh, Joe's previous novel, um, which is called Busan Busi, um, which was about uh, the, it was set in the kind of punk underworld of um, Taipei uh, music scene. And uh, he then approached us with Migrante, which is a very different kind of novel. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, as he says in the foreword to, to Migrante, um, it, it is a novel, it's fiction, um, but he was asked to tell this story by a group of migrant um, workers who he knew from the Philippines. And he'd also been across the Philippines and done uh, stories on migrant workers who came to Taiwan, the kind of places that they came from, the brokerage system um, that kind of governs their work and uh, discipline in effect in Taiwan. Um, and the frankly terrible way that many migrant workers are, are treated. Um, and so it's it sort of harks back to an earlier time um, of the novel as social commentary, social activism in a way, um, because it's saying something that many people probably don't want to hear. Um, it, it doesn't paint Taiwan in a great light um, in some ways. There are individual Taiwanese characters who are um, helpful and kind and generous, um, but the system itself looks pretty ugly. And I think that reflect, reflects reality. Um, so what Joe's done with the book, I think brilliantly is rather than writing sort of in contrast to the pieces that he's written before, which highlight the fate of migrant workers in a reporting sense is it takes you into the head of Rizal, who's the, the main character, um, and you're experiencing it with him. And it's a completely different effect to reading reportage about uh, a situation to be put in somebody's shoes you know it, it's it's powerful stuff what are some of the upcoming books that camper press will be publishing as this is a taiwan podcast i'll, I'll stick to or I'll, talk, <laughs> I'll talk in more detail about the taiwan titles um so we have book coming out a non-fiction title coming out later this year called grassroots heritage mm-hmm. um that's by james x morris and it looks at the tension between cultural preservation and development in Taiwan and uh, centers around a cemetery in, in Xindian. Um, so he's looking at uh, protests that were trying to preserve the cemetery um, against the developers and the uh, local government who were fine with it being bulldozed and used to, to build new development. Um, so that's, I mean, On the one hand, it's about this particular place and this particular uh, protest and development. But he really uses that then to talk about the wider issues in Taiwan around cultural preservation, particularly of something like a a graveyard where it's it's really bound up with religion and traditional practice and superstition. And, uh, you know, there's a whole load of emotional weight that comes with that rather than the just the the kind of nimby aspect of you know you're spoiling my view by building a new development this is not that this is something that's taiwan's tangible heritage but people feel some people will feel awkward about fighting for because it's a graveyard and that's kind of slightly icky Mm -hmm. (laughs) subject Mm -hmm. yeah um so it's a fascinating book i'm really looking forward to to getting that out uh, we also have a book by um, Paul Barclay, who's an author I've wanted to work with for a really long time, um, about uh, a guy called Kondo, uh, Kondo Katsusaburo, I think I've got that right, um, who's uh, a Japanese merchant who, who married into uh, the Sadiq indigenous people. And he wrote this obviously during the, the Japanese uh, era in Taiwan. 
and he wrote extensively about the Osho Rebellion, um, mm-hmm. which was the subject of the film, uh, Sadiq Bale. Right. Um, so Kondo is interesting because he's, uh, he's got a massive ego and he kind of makes everything and he's a larger than life character and he, he sensationalizes everything and he makes everything about himself and how he's the hero of every story. Um, but despite that, you can kind of look through him to, to understand sort of the relationship between the Japanese and at least the Sadiq indigenous people in Taiwan at the time, there is something really interesting to say about that dynamic. Um, and so that's what uh, Paul Barclay's working on. So that will be out also later this year. I'm really mm-hmm. looking forward to that. Uh, aside from the Taiwan books, then we've got uh, two books on Tibet. Um, we have two cycling books, uh, one from China, one from Japan. Mm-hmm. We've got two novels uh, set in China. And uh, we've also got a, a historical fiction uh, tale, which is set in Central Asia along the Silk Road. Uh, so that is currently working on that book at the moment, actually, and that's a lot of fun. So looking forward to getting those out too. Great. It's so evident how much you enjoy what you're doing. Yeah. Is there any other news that you'd like to share with my audience or anything that we haven't covered in this interview? Uh, well, let me think. So, um, I thought we might give you a special offer just for the listeners of the podcast. Oh, that's um, wonderful. Thank you so much. <laughs> you're very welcome. So just for you guys, you can get 15% off any of our books um, by using the coupon code TALKTAIWAN, or sorry, TALKTW. That's all lowercase. So that's T-A-L-K-T-W uh, on our website. So that's camphorpress.com. And that'll be for a month after the release of this episode. Anything you want off the, on the website is 15% off with that coupon. Uh, in terms of other news, um, I guess talking about the, the publishing process um, and how, far, how hard it is sometimes to find a publisher, uh, I am starting a new publishing uh, company, which will run sort of alongside Camphor Press um, called Tin Gate. And that will be a hybrid publisher. So a hybrid publisher is one where the author generally covers the production costs of the book, but then they keep most of the profits of the book um, as a result. And so generally that's used for people who, uh, in my case, it's going to be about memoir, biography, and travel writing. So I'm going to be open very soon for submissions on, uh, on those topics. I'm looking forward to that a lot. So how is that going to be different from Camper um, mm. in terms So Camper of- Press is a traditional publisher in the sense that um, the press covers the costs of developing the book and the author then gets some royalties based on sales. Mm-hmm. Uh, so generally we don't tend to do advances on the book, so it's all based on actual sales numbers and you would get a certain percentage of the, the sales afterwards. Okay. With a hybrid press like Tin Gate, the new the new press that I'm developing, um, that will be the author will cover the production costs. So the cost of uh, typesetting the book, of having it edited, Copy of designing a cover, and all the rest are covered by the author. But then the author has complete control over the book. So um, okay, so it's similar to self publishing. It is, uh, although, you know, with self-publishing, you're doing everything yourself. With hybrid publishing, then you get an expert to do it for you. Right. So, so you can help the them difference. if they need someone to help them with the typesetting, someone to help them with the cover design, all that kind of exactly. thing. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and that reminds me of a question. What advice would you have for any aspiring authors or people who want to get their books published? Don't just send out the manuscript write a book proposal, put yourself in the publisher's shoes, put yourself in the reader's shoes. Um, it's, it might be hard to do as an author because you're so close to the subject. So you have to try and kind of step away from the book a little bit and look at it with outsiders eyes. Um, I think for most publishers, commercial considerations are paramount. So most receive far more submissions than they could possibly publish just like we do. Um, what makes your book the one that they should take a risk on? because they're going to sink a lot of their time and money into publishing your book 
why should they? Um, so you need to make that case to them. Mm-hmm. Take a little time, I think, to research the publisher, um, identify how it fits with their catalog. You'd be surprised at the, the number of submissions that, that we get and other publishers get that have nothing to do with their mission. Um, so that's kind of a waste of time for the author as well. You spend all this time submitting it and we're instantly just going, okay, well, it's, you know, it's a book about, uh, a volcano in Iceland. It's got nothing to do with us. You know, it's an easy (laughs) reject for us. Um, and then I guess if you submitted to lots of relevant agents and publishers and had no luck, uh, it might be worth considering hybrid press, uh, as publishing, uh, as a publishing outlet or uh, self-publishing. So mm-hmm. both of those things work um, in getting your book out there. Self-publishing is obviously more work, but you have complete control over every aspect of the process. Um, the hybrid press angle gives you professionals to work on your book, but then you have to front the cost for, for the book production. Mm-hmm. So there are pros and cons to both approaches. Uh, but I see the stigma that used to exist against self-publishing and against hybrid publishing um, is really on the wane. I mean, it's the, you know, it has changed to such a great extent that uh, self-published and independently published and hybrid press books are getting into the major book chains and are being reviewed alongside books from the major publishers. So it really doesn't have to be an obstacle anymore to credibility or to getting your book out there. Mm, yeah, interesting. But the books that you mentioned that are getting into major bookstores or getting reviewed and so forth, um, they must have some sort of traction or some something about them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's um, it's very hard to predict what that might be. Um, you know, we're not very good at it, and we've been doing it for eight years. Uh, so that that kind of magic dust that combination of circumstance and serendipity that that just produces a, a hit um you know if i could predict that then uh, i'd be a beer rich man but um but i think it's uh you know there are so many books published each year and ever more books each year um you know especially with the 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 ease of self-publishing um the proliferation of presses that to cut through that noise, you kind of have to be either very lucky or you have to be doing something quite different with your marketing, with your outreach to potential readers. Uh, it's tough. It's tough. But um, you do get the, the occasional uh, breakthrough hit. Right. And I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about what your partners, John and Mark, are doing in Taiwan. Like, Are they working on any other projects right now? Yeah, so um, John is working on a podcast uh, called the Formosa Files, and that's really um, that is episodes from Taiwan's history, uh, not really examined in a kind of chronological way, but just in a here are some fascinating stories, and so he'll dip into particular episodes about history. Um, he has a a co-host. Um, Eric Michael Smith and uh, the two of them kind of uh, go into these fascinating little episodes in, in Taiwan's history and tell you a little bit more about um, certain things that you might not have heard of so they have um, a 25 episode series which is coming out now I think uh, I'm not sure what episode they're up to but uh, quite far advanced into that season and then they've just been renewed for their funding has been renewed for a 30 episode season for next year, uh, oh, or I guess this year now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's going really well. Um, very happy for him with with that. Uh, for Mark, um, he uh, has his website uh, pinyin.info, which is about uh, pinyin. Um, but he also uh, is kind of the web editor for. A, uh, a scholarly journal, like an open access scholarly journal uh, called Sinoplatonic Papers. Um, and that's, uh, yeah, so that's a kind of di- separate project for him. Um, and there's some, there's some really great stuff on there, particularly if you're into esoteric uh, um, academic works about Asia. 
I'll probably have to bring uh, John on as a guest. Uh, I have listened to a few episodes of the Formosa Files. It's an interesting approach to history. Some lesser-known tales about historical figures or events in Taiwan. I wanted to thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be on the Talking Taiwan podcast. I want to thank you for for having me. It's been uh, it's been great fun, and uh, yeah, keep up the good work with the podcast. I've been speaking with Michael Cannings, the publisher at Camper Press. If you enjoy this episode, go on over to Audible or Apple Podcasts and leave us a review there. It helps others to discover Talking Taiwan. Tell a friend about us or subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. To learn more about any of the items mentioned in this episode, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. There will list any related links. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.